Hi, everybody. Today's guest on the podcast is Chris Meyer. He's the author of the new book, Life in 20 Lessons, What a Funeral Guy Discovered About Life from Death. Chris has an awesome story. We are both recovering attorneys, so you'll have to indulge us (laughs) as we talk about that. But he has a much cooler exit out of law story than I do. And then he found himself owning a funeral home. And so his new book is about the things that he learned during that process and really fascinating story. And I hope you all enjoy this episode with Chris Meyer. Hi, and welcome to the same 24 hours podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. I'm very excited about my guest today. Chris Meyer is here. Hi, Chris. How are you, Meredith? Thank you for having me. I'm great. You're most welcome. I'm glad to have you. We were chatting offline about how um, you have family up here in Massachusetts, and I'm a new Yankee. (laughs) Can I ever claim it if I'm not from here? But I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I think you have carpetbagger status, right? Oh, that's right. That's right. I forgot the the correct term. (laughs) That's correct. But it's it's 20 degrees here today. Where are you now? I am in Sacramento, California, and it's overcast, but it's definitely not 20. (laughs) And uh, I grew up in the East Coast, so I know what you're going through, and I I don't envy you right now. Yeah. I mean, it's I grew up in Georgia, and so to be up north is kind of strange, but I really like it. I mean, there's something about the cold that that is nice in a way. Um, I think because I was so used to the extreme heat for so many years, um, but I am, I am cold. (laughs) Yeah. Are you a skier at all? Um, I'm a really bad skier, but I like the bunny slopes. So, um, my kids are actually getting into it and I've got kind of a bum knee and it, it scares me. Um, um, it's a great place, but it feels so majestic when it's up, when you're up there on the slopes and it's all white and, uh, there's something, pretty spiritual about it out there. Yeah. yeah. And I realized um, before we got started that we are both, both have law degrees that we don't necessarily use. So congratulations to us. So what happened there? That's a great thing. Yeah. (laughs) So mine is probably even a more twisted story than yours, but um, I was in law school and I somehow, we had to do an advanced writing project in your last year of law school. And I somehow convinced my law school to let me write a screenplay. What? <laughs> I know, I know. I, I had them that it was law related oh and gosh, there was some legal analysis in it. And for some reason they signed off. And in doing so, I then took that screenplay and I actually made, uh, I passed my bar in New York and I made a low budget film in New York City for about $100,000 ended up going to a bunch of film festivals, didn't get into the big one, Sundance, but I I got flown to Rome and everything was awesome. And I was like, I don't want to be a lawyer. (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm out. That's amazing. I know, right? And my parents looked at me like, 
for real. We yeah. just paid for law school and I got a master's in environmental law also. And I, I was, I worked for the, uh, the New York, uh, excuse me, the, the environmental protection agency down in New York city. And I was, they were all telling me, yeah, the, the high paying jobs are on the polluting side. So, <laughs> right. so oh man, I can't do this. So once I made that movie, I was like, I'm out. And I loaded up my car with my film and I drove to L.A. not knowing a soul. So that was uh, that was my legal uh, experience, uh, the extent of it. I am licensed. I do keep it up. And it's nice to have. And it was a great education. But uh, yeah, no. What was your Well, I just have so much respect for people like you. I've talked to a bunch of people who are like, yeah, I was in my second year of law school and I just sat there and said, I can't do this. And I left and I'm like, what? Because I sat in the first day of civil procedure and I was like, what is this? I can't do this. And then I sat there and I sat in the legal profession for 13 years, um, hating all of it. And it wasn't that I had great coworkers. I had a great job. The people I loved, the profession killed me. And especially when I was in litigation, I did business litigation for like two years and being head to head in a confrontational manner and dealing with like just people that were mad. And I realized I just couldn't handle it. Like as, as pushy and loud mouthed as I am, like deep down, I really don't want to fight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. I mean, it, like you said, I think the realization comes to us all at different times, but uh, I did capitalize on that. I knew pretty, pretty much my third year of law school that, God, I don't know if I could do this the rest of my life. You know, I, it's just not me. And I think the the hard part was just to to take the the leap, right. To take that jump and say, man, I have to have the courage to, to admit that I don't want to do this right now because I don't want to, I don't want to get a couple of years in and, and yeah. something different. So well, and it's hard to, parents, like, once you're in it, like, cause I was in it and I had the golden handcuffs, you know, I had to then give up that nice paycheck, you know, and a lot of people are like, well, why, how could you give up that paycheck? And I'm like, well, because I was unhealthy and it was making me crazy, but it's a, I think it's a lot easier to do what you do. I mean, it's not easier, it's ballsier, but I think mentally yeah. people can't let go once they're in the profession, like 20 years in, because then you're making good money and yet you're still miserable and you can't walk away from it. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so after we write films, what do we do? <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, it, seem, it seemingly gets more twisted each time. So I spent about um, 11 years in Hollywood uh, trying to be a writer. I worked my way up. Initially, I worked for Herb Ritz, who was the sort of foremost fashion photographer of our time, who's, who has since died of AIDS. And he had a production company and I would work for him doing commercials and photo shoots, which I was essentially a model wrangler, which was awesome, an <laughs> awesome job. And, uh, you know, driving to Chateau Marmont and picking up Helena Christensen and Cindy Crawford. So it was a great job. I had gotten through a friend of a friend and um, that's how I made money. And after about, you know, 11 years, I had a manager and an agent and my wife was working and we got pregnant and she's like, I want to be a mom. And I'm like, yeah, I want you to be a mom. And didn't know what to do. Wasn't attorney. I was not an attorney in California. I was attorney in New York. So I'm like, do you want to go back to New York? And she's like, I kind of like to be with my family up North. So 
she had a friend who was a mortician and at every family gathering would be saying, Chris, this is a steady income. This is, you know, it's always a need. We should go, we should open a funeral home. And lo and behold, <laughs> that was, my, that was my best option, you know, 11 years as a screenwriter and uh, a new baby on the way. And that was my best option. Yeah. So insert your joke here, you know, well, yeah, um, I mean, business was not dying. You've gotten that one, but um, yeah. wait, so were you, were you staying in California or you moved back to yeah, so we moved from LA up North to Northern California. Her family okay. is in Lodi and we were a little, we're in Sacramento okay. And uh, we, you know, I had my son and she would stay home with the, my son in L.A. And I was coming up here to scout locations and try to say, where can we put this new funeral home? And it was kind of tough. So I was back and forth and, and sleeping on friends' couches. And lo and behold, this funeral home, which never happens, was on the cusp of bankruptcy and we swooped in, got it, and turned it around. And, and that was the sort of the life-changing moment for me. And it was really out of necessity. It wasn't out of some, you know, internal love that I wanted to be a funeral director my whole life here. But, um, you know, seeing my son, and that was the first child that I had had, and seeing his beautiful eyes looking up at me, I was like, I got, I got to grind now. It's, it's time. Right. And I felt like. You know, I, I felt that I had given it. I gave it 11 years and I really, I got a manager, the agent. I was there, I was on the cusp, but I had multiple projects that went out and didn't sell. So this was, that was the life-changing aha moment, albeit very late in my life. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was great. It really okay, was. So how does one just buy a funeral home and start? So was your, your friend was a mortician. My friend was a mortician, so he was licensed with everything. And so you didn't and have to do that part. No. And I thought that's, you know, I was going to be the business guy. I would be in charge of all the, you know, running the business and he would take the front office stuff. But as you know, in any business you go into, you got to keep your overhead low. So each time, you know, he needed an extra set of hands, he would say, Chris, can you help me? And I'll be like, yeah. I mean, we don't have an option. I didn't want to pay someone else to do it. So I would get further and further and deeper and deeper into the funeral home, the front side of the business. And that was just like, I, I, the only thing I can liken it to Meredith is that I, I really, I, there was no plan B, right? <laughs> right. There, there was just nothing for me. I, I had a baby, a son, and I knew I wanted to have more. And it was like, if you don't do this now and turn this place around, you know, what's plan B? And I didn't have one. So, for me, that was the greatest thing in the world. It was just sit there, grind, understand this new business, don't be afraid of anything, and get after it. And yeah. uh, we're very lucky in, in two years' time, less than two years' time, we turned it around, we renovated it, we made it look nicer, you know, it had been in a little disrepair. And uh, we got we got successful quick. But the, the hard part then was two years later, he left me and I'm, oh, no. sitting there, and I'm sitting there all dude, really. And he moved to San Francisco and, um, yeah. So then it became my own and, uh, that was another challenge. Right. But, and I imagine like finding, I bet morticians aren't that easy to find. Yeah. And not traditionally gregarious and outgoing and people you want to hang with. Right. But, uh, <laughs> I but I think we, <laughs> <laughs> I, I always say there's 
there's two ways funeral directors can go. They can start drinking at 10.30 in the morning or they can leave at, you know, six o'clock and say, man, I am so grateful. I'm going to go be with my children. Yeah. And for me that, you know, that was the genesis of the book, the, that early, uh, you know, thrown into the fire, I started to meet with families again because we needed to save money. And it was profound for me because over time, I started hearing the same things, right? The sort of would have, could have, should haves mm. of surviving families. And of course, being the screenwriter in me, I was like, man, I got to memorialize these because. I think I could help a lot of people, right? That 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 are gonna we're all going through it eventually, right? Right. So I just it really started early on for me, about three, four years in. I was like, Yeah, there's some lessons here and we can compile these. And so this book has really been uh, sort of a ten year labor of love of sort of putting those stories down and then trying to intercut them with my life and trying to find some some connection of, man, how did this all come to me? You know, right. it, uh, you know, you're either religious, you're spiritual, you're agnostic. I don't know, but it, it seemed to be in the stars. And I, mm. for me, the beginning of it was I had a, a tremendous relationship with my grandfather. I had a very special, I'm the youngest of three and my mother's an only child and her father and me were, we were just like thick as thieves. We were, he would come to all my games. He would, we just hung out, you know, it was a, a very unusual uh, grandson, grandfather relationship. And I think that that was in the stars. My love of him and my care for him kind of translated and that gave me empathy um, very, very early on. And my love of, of the elderly, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, like, you have, how hard is it? Because when you're having a bad day, the people that are coming to you are having a far worse day. And, um, but it, how hard is it to set that aside, to set your own emotions aside, whatever's going on with you on a daily basis? I mean, I think everyone in any job is required to do that to a degree, but it, it seems especially delicate with a funeral home. Yeah. And, and I, I'll be honest with you. I don't think I was very good at it. <laughs> I, mean, I uh, I'm just being candid, but, I would find myself, I'm an emotional guy anyways, and I would find myself um, relating to their stories and almost like tearing up. Yeah. Them. And I, I would go home and I would talk to my wife and I would say, I don't know if this is going to be okay long term because it's there a is, bummer. Yeah. It's <laughs> a bummer. It's a bummer. Also, you're <laughs> empathizing with their story and geez. I mean, how do you not feel for them? Right. And um, I think a lot of funeral directors have this sort of professional five yard away from people. And I wasn't good at that. And right. I think I think that's why people like talking to me. I think they saw that I cared. And I think they they were very clear to to ask me, Chris, you have children, right? And let me just tell you, do, go be a coach. Go to their everything at school, be be with them, go home, don't stay here all night, you know, and and I really took those to heart. It was that's why I always say the the funeral profession for me was the greatest gift I could have ever been given because 
to a T that people were like, hey, man, you can't get more time. That's one thing you cannot get more, right? We can all get more money. We can all get more things. You can't get more time. And that was probably the most profound message that came out of it all. And does that did that lesson make you feel like how does that make you feel because sometimes when I think of that and one we're not in control of the time we have left and two that you can't get more of it that sort of sends me into a panic (laughs) um yeah and and face with that every day did you find yourself ever thinking like okay I don't have much time left why am I in a funeral home (laughs) I didn't I think for me I took the message that you know, I always say there was this perfect symbiosis between me entering the funeral business and me being a dad. Mm. And I think that absolute perfect nexus at the same time of my life was just so perfect for me because they were, these people were telling me, go, go home at five, six o'clock and be with your child. And I did. And I was there and I, yeah. I'm, I'm still, I'm a, I'm a crazy coach. I'm out of everything of my sons. But for me, it was just, there's no panic because I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we're all here pretty short. Yeah. So I'm having the time of my life. And I always say that when people say, how are you coaching so much? How do you do this? I, and I'm like, come on, get on the, get on the ship. You know, we're all, there ain't much time for all of us. Let's enjoy it. So I kind of just flip it the other way and just Mm -hmm. glasses half full kind of thing. Right. But I can see, I can see very clearly how some people go, ah, you know, cat on a hot tin roof and yeah. When you're like living in contradiction to what you wish you were doing, you know, when you're, when, when you know, you're not doing the things you want to do and, and living the life or the career, the relationship that you you want to be and when you're told you know life can be taken and it's short you panic because you're like this isn't what I want this is not my life this is not what I actually want and and that's where the panic comes in I think not yeah. to say that I don't have that because I said I panic but I panic because I'm a control freak <laughs> yeah yeah and there's I I gave that up a long time ago yeah. <laughs> there's, no control. there's no control I just right. you know, and I think, again, the, the value of seeing that in the funeral home, that life can change in a moment, right? In a moment's notice, whether, you know, you're hanging out with your friends and driving in a car and bam, there's an accident. I just yeah. saw it so much yeah. that it just resonated with me that I, as much as I think I'm in control, yeah, I'm not, not in control, control of anything. anything. Yeah. yeah. So your book is called Life in 20 Lessons, What a Funeral Guy Discovered About Life from death and it is available on Amazon and it looks amazing. So congratulations. Thank you for, you know, going through the book process. I know it well. So what are, let's talk about your maybe favorite two lessons that you have learned. Um, yeah, so there's so many, but, um, I talked about, uh, failure as the foundation, right? So I think our society and especially you, you probably, you can identify this, you and me as a younger person, if we could understand that the failures are good because they mean you're trying, like that to me is the, I want my 20 year old self to know. Yeah. 
was because I always think of it as like sort of building a house and my failures are one of the bricks and failures for me, I'm trying to teach my children that failures are awesome because Mm -hmm. you're getting yourself out of your comfort zone. It might not work all the time, but you're learning from that and you're learning what you like and don't like. And so that for me, uh, it's just, ah, I I just wish I knew it earlier, (laughs) but it, 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 you know, now I have a, a tech company that I, I, I'm failing all the time and we're trying <laughs> things and we're, we're trying to experiment and it doesn't always work, but that's the most exciting part for me. Well, so don't you think there's like some generational ties to that too? Like maybe now we can recognize that failure is a good thing. Whereas I don't know how you were raised, but I was, I, I wasn't brought up to like be, failing and learning from it. I was brought up to like, get it right and be perfect. <laughs> and so yeah. I, I feel like, you know, you say, you say that failures are a foundation and, and I frequently talk to my kids about how great failure is. And when whatever happens, I say, okay, what can we learn from this? You know? And, yeah. and I, you know, it wasn't approached that way for me as a kid. It was like, why the hell did you fail? <laughs> no, no, for sure. Right. Yeah. So our parents probably, right. Yours is probably not dissimilar from mine. I'm from German uh, parents, and they're mm-hmm. super strict. And yeah. they were uh, they worked the, the same job forever, right? I mean, we don't right. do that. This is more temporal society, and we're right. trying to like get out of it if we don't like it. And we have many jobs in our lifetime, whereas they, you know, tended to have one. So, yeah, I think it is a generational thing. I think as a society, maybe we've gotten more educated, uh, maybe less religious maybe a little bit more liberal in some instances. Um, and I think all those things have maybe, I'm hoping, I, I hearken it back to 9-11 and that for us was sort of a, for me at least, was a, a change in the collective conscious of the country, thinking that you know this could happen on our soil and you know that changed a lot for me personally and I think in our country, so. Yeah, that was it. And the second, you know, big lesson is something I call dest, right? And I say, what is dest? Dest is do epic stuff or shit today. <laughs> and I want to train my kids to say, you know, what if? I love the what if in the world, right? So what if there was a better sponge? What if, you know, you could create a car that ran on no gas? What if? And then the second part of the what if is why not me? Right. right. And I think so those two things were profound. I I wasn't a really a great listener at people because see, I'm not a, I'm not the smart guy. I'm not the guy that took the LSAT probably like you, crushed it. No, and so, well, me this why. Okay. <laughs> so that wasn't me. And I was not a standardized test taker. So for me, it was constantly taking these standardized tests not doing well at them and feeling inadequate because of the standardized test. Right. But after a while, I was like, dude, I know that's not me. And I know I'm smarter. And, you know, I, I was I was the kid that thought in his brain that he should be at Harvard when I was at the community college. Right. So but that I think that gave me my fight, my grit, my my sense of pounding. And the derivation that I I go back to is my father, when I was a freshman in high school, decided that I'm going to leave my 
cushy civil engineering job and I'm going to start my own business out of our house. And I saw that. And I saw people coming after work, moonlighting with my father in our den. My mother would cook meals and we would, you know, it was kind of freaky. You're, you're out on a Tuesday night after school and you come home from football practice and your, your dinner table's filled with these randos that are <laughs> you know, moonlighting with your dad. And, yeah. you know, but that I, I draw now as an older man, I, I look back on that and I say, wow, that was why I am the way I am. Because I saw my father getting uncomfortable, which is another thing I talk about in the book, and having that courage to be uncomfortable and just having the confidence in himself. I think that entrepreneurial spirit I tapped into very early on, and I admired that in my dad. My dad was not a, a sports guy, and I was a sports kid, which was ironic. Mm-hmm. Because today I just see so many sports dads pushing their sports kids to be something they're not. Yeah. And I admire my dad looking back at it, that he was just like, I'm doing my own thing. I'm, I'm building a business. And he admired me that I went off and just played sports all the time. Right. Right. That's awesome. I yeah. like the whole idea about, about being getting used to being uncomfortable. I mean, that is such a hard lesson to learn, but it is vital. I mean, it's vital in so many areas. And I talk about this a lot with my athletes and they're like, well, races are hard. Training is hard. Everything's hard. I'm like, yeah. And if you just do it for a while, you'll realize that life is also hard and you're training for that. Yeah. And, and it all ties in because you, you just, once you're able to to do a long race, you can, you, you know what being uncomfortable is for hours and hours. And then that translates into your ability to be uncomfortable in other areas. And, and so it's a good, a good tool. And I imagine working, running a funeral home is, it was a great exercise in learning to be uncomfortable. Yeah. And I, I think you're liking the funeral home to the athletics is, is a perfect, perfect analogy. And I, Grew up playing uh, football, and it was horrible. I mean, three three times a day when you're a freshman, and you know, in the heat of, and and to, to complicate things, our football field was like was put over a, a former dump. So when it got wet, you would <laughs> now God knows what was leaching into the grass at that point. But uh, no, that that uh, that uncomfortableness for me translates into business so well because. Yeah. You get trained, and like you said, you're you're a, a supreme athlete. You know you've gone through the, the the absolute rigors of rigors, but that that has toughened you up. And you're like, yeah, what what are you gonna bring me on in business that's gonna gonna make it's it worth that, that way, right. right? Right. Well, I know I definitely want everyone to pick up your book, Life in Twenty Lessons. But I have a question for you that that's unrelated because I think it's more of a beneficial, just kind wow. of. Thing to, for people to know. So, what do you? What are you not supposed to say to grieving people? Because I, I find that when someone loses someone, and then they put it on Facebook or or somewhere, the the comments are so interesting, and I never know which ones are appropriate. Because I, I know everyone says I'm sorry for your loss, and. I I understand that, and I have another podcast I'm going to be releasing with someone where we discuss this, but um, I always struggle with that one. I feel like it's impersonal, and I but I don't know if 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 that's the right thing to say, 
And since you've dealt with that so much, like what kind of advice do you have about what to say to grieving people or, or particularly what not to maybe? Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a great question. I'm in the camp of less is more. <laughs> I Just say, hug them and nod. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a hugger. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, or I say, you know, please let me know if there's anything I can do because mm-hmm. I think, look it, it's, it's generally considered the, the crappiest day of everyone's life, right? right. So it's like they're going to reach out. And it's also commensurate with your relationship to them. Obviously, if it's your, your mother or your father, you know, someone close, it's very, very different. But I think less is more in the general aspect. And I, in my experience, I think people have responded to like a handwritten letter right? Uh, A voicemail that says, Hey, I'm thinking about you. Let me know if there's anything I can do. That's the kind of stuff that I appreciated. And the, I think the, the big thing, Meredith, is that we tend to think about loss a lot differently. And in terms of the person that's dying, your pain is genuinely commensurate with the amount of love you had for that person. Mm, Right. And I think For me, I knew that with uh, the story of my grandfather, right? So we were super tight. And in my grieving process, I wasn't feeling like my brothers were were going through the same thing as I was. And I was wondering why, you know, this is is my Upa, Upa's uh, grandfather in German. And I was like, you know, why do they not feel this way? And why am I having such a hard time with it? And, you know, I would talk to my mom, obviously, she was the only child. And she says, I, you know, she was just like, you didn't, they didn't have the same relationship you, as you. And I think that's important for all of us to understand, especially as grandchildren. This, it was really pronounced for me because obviously my brothers are two and four years older than me. And I'm like, are these guys insensitive? I mean, you know, right. what, what's wrong with them? You know, why do they not hurt like I do? And that was really, I thought it was very profound. Uh, They just didn't, you know, have that relationship. I would have my father, my grandfather over and just watch football on a Sunday. And we would just sit on the couch together and fall asleep and have some food. And, you know, it was just, we were just chill. It was just fun. And that, that I think was very interesting about loss. Mm, yeah, that's such a good point. And I, it seems like it would be a no brainer to realize that. But I, I guess I hadn't really made that connection that the grief is, is different depending on the relationship. That's, yeah, that's really good to to recognize. So do you have any anecdotes or, or um, any stories that you'd like to share before? before we yeah. say goodbye anything like i don't want to be like you have any funny stories but do you well, have I, definitely have, I definitely have a funny story and that was you know of course everyone wants to hear it and i was meeting with a, a woman uh and her husband had passed and you know i was just doing you know again it felt like a normal day to me and i was just you know trying to be empathetic and look in her eyes and and be very direct with her but i could see that there was something like else going on with her. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to be slow. And, you know, sometimes when you talk to someone and you you don't really feel like they're listening, you can see something else is, it was almost like, not like smoke was coming out of her ears, but you could see the gra- the wheels turning in her head. 
So I, you know, I got to the end and I said, is there anything you want to talk about? Cause it seems like you have, you know, obviously you have a lot on your mind. Your husband has passed, but what's, what's up. And she's like, she looked me in the eye and she goes, um, so we can, you know, bury him any way we want. And I'm like, yeah, of course we do anything you want. And she's like, she looks me and she goes, he was a clown. And I'm I'm like, yeah, he was funny. Like you made <laughs> and she was like, no, no, he was a clown. He was called Mr. Jiggles. And she slid this paper in front of me of him as a clown. And I know what everyone's thinking, right? You know, you're thinking clowns creepy, right? You know, the mustard stain on the clown outfit and polka dots. And but she he was like that traditional clown that just did it at family gatherings. And you could see it, it brought a joy to her heart and that their relationship. And so she said, can I bury him in his clown outfit? <laughs> and I'm like, of course. Like full makeup and all? Full makeup, nice. red shoes, every polka dotted uh, outfit. Wait, what kind of shoes would fit in the, in the casket? <laughs> oh, yeah. They, they fit. Trust me. They bend over. Um, and so we did that. And I tell you, that was the best service. You could see people slowly approaching the casket. It was an open oh casket. Gosh. And they just, almost to a person, burst out laughing and crying. That It was so much fun. Oh, my goodness. That is, that is, that's good. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> well, we always joke, my dad, um, he, for as long as I can remember, he wears this gray T-shirt and these gray shorts. <laughs> and that's just like what he wears at the house. And he's like, you better bury me in that. And he's like, do not put me in a suit. I hate suits. And I just keep asking mom. I'm like, are we really going to bury dad in the gray? And she's like, well, yeah, and no socks. That's <laughs> I'm like, so yeah. good. So I get that. teased all the time by my kids that I wear my uniform around the house. Yeah. So oh, I, yeah, I we have totally, uniforms. I totally get where your dad's coming yeah. from. Total uniforms. He had like 12 pairs of each and the uniform went on. And my mom has a uniform too. I actually don't have one. I, I kind of bucked that tradition. I was like, I for you. <laughs> I know. Maybe I need another decade and then I'll have yeah. a uniform. Yeah. Well, yeah. this was great, Chris. I, I appreciate it. And I, I look forward to your book, Life in 20 Lessons. And um, yeah, what, what an interesting creature you are. <laughs> Thank you very much. You likewise, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Well, before you go, so um, this podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, meaning that we all have the same 24 hours in our very numbered days. Um, yes. But what we do in this oh, Don't be anxious, Meredith. Huh? <laughs> but don't be anxious about that. Don't be anxious. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. It's fine. Um, but what we do in those hours is what you know, creates our greatest health and happiness and success. So what is something that, that you like to do or you've incorporated as a habit in your 24 hours to make each day a little bit better? So I thought a lot about this <laughs> and I tell you, I'm kind of a sucker and they already told you that I'm a hugger. My favorite time is tucking my boys in mm -hmm. and I find I get so much enrichment, so much energy, so much love from those moments, those quiet moments at the end of the day when they're tired and I'm tired and we just sit and chat. And I just love that. That that for me is the good stuff, right? That's the simplicity that I love in life. And, you know, I'd love to tell you that I love a great workout or I love a good meal <laughs> or 
or some other, you know, I, I, I'm like, uh, what's his name? Tim Ferriss. And I'm in an ice bath at four in the morning. Right. No, that's not jumping me. into a cold pool yeah, somewhere. Yeah, no, Who no. has all these cold pools? By the way? <laughs> exactly. uh, I just, I just love, love that time. And, and that's my special time. So that's awesome. I encourage everyone to do it. Well, the funny thing about our kids, so my son, we tuck them both in at night and it's not, he's not in bed like six minutes before he comes back downstairs Yeah, and he's like, I need another hug. And so I've gotten to the point where I'm like, I'll see you in a few minutes. Like yeah. I don't even bother doing the long tuck in because it's right. a secondary tuck in. That's the good, that's the good stuff. That's the good stuff. It drives my husband crazy. So he like, we'll tuck him in and then James will appear in the doorway and my husband's like, go to bed. And I'm like, dude, he's 12. Yeah. Yes, we've got like maybe another year and a half before he doesn't maybe. even want us to hug him. Maybe. Yeah. And so when he reappears in the doorway, like every night, I'm just like, oh, he, you know, it's another hug. It's another moment where he still loves his mother. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yes. Yeah. It won't you got to take advantage of those. Yeah. God, there's yeah. a there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities here, Mar- Meredith. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Chris, and we'll talk soon. Yes, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.